Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast, made with Zencaster. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about asexuality. Different people define asexuality in different ways, so we're going to be talking about what it means to be asexual and how many people identify as such. We're also going to explore common myths and misconceptions about asexuality, such as the idea that it represents a sexual dysfunction. We will also look at why we should view asexuality as a unique sexual orientation and address common issues that come up in a relationship when an asexual person enters a romantic relationship with someone who isn't asexual. I'm joined today by clinical psychologist Dr. Morag Ewell, the founder and director of Ontario Sex Therapy, a private practice that offers sex therapy as well as clinical training and supervision out of Toronto, Canada. Dr. Ewell has published extensively on human sexuality, but is especially recognized for her groundbreaking studies of asexuality. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, so let's dive right in. Hi, Morag, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, Justin. I'm really happy to be here. I am happy to have you here, and I really appreciate you taking some time to speak with me about this important topic. I've been wanting to do an episode on asexuality for quite some time, and I thought you were the perfect person to interview for this particular topic, given how much research you have published in this area, because your work has really informed my understanding of this topic. But before we get into all of that, can you please tell us a little bit about how you got into the world of sex therapy and research in the first place? What is it that inspired you just in general to go into this field? Yeah, it's a good question. It kind of starts a long time ago in the early 2000s. I wanted to go to medical school, probably like many other students out there, and did a biology degree, first academic lab, you know, molecular biology and genetics. And then I applied to medical school, didn't get in. <laughs> And so I went traveling for a few years <laughs> and came back and decided I was going to try again. So I ended up doing psychology. I was like, hey, I got to upgrade. I need to do some volunteering, beef up my med school application. And I ended up in a human sexuality class with Dr. Lori Brado, who ended up being my graduate uh, supervisor and mentor. And I remember sitting in that class and thinking it was the most fascinating topic that I could imagine existing, you know, especially coming from a biology background and a really biology, like having a love for that. And then realizing like, this is the perfect combination of biology and psychology and culture and interpersonal stuff and all of the wonderful complexities of a human. So and I also realized that I was terrified <laughs> that I wouldn't be able, I couldn't remember thinking, I can't imagine saying the word masturbate out loud His Lori was kind of going on, you know, in depth about these kinds of topics. It's like, okay, well, this is where I need to lean into, you know? And so I asked Lori if I could volunteer in her lab. And that was 2005. And it was the start of this not only wonderful academic learning for me in relationship with asexuality research, and then um, led into my clinical training, master's, PhD in clinical psychology. And here I am. Thank you for sharing that. And you know, I've heard similar stories from many people where you just take a human sexuality course and it just opens up your eyes to this whole world that you didn't know was there. So I can totally understand and relate to that. And also how Dr. Lori Brado could be the person who really 
brought you over into the field. Lori is a previous guest on the podcast, and she's someone who I very much admire. I love her work, and I've learned so much from her. So I'm not surprised that she inspired you to go into the field. So let's talk about your work on asexuality. And as a starting point, let's define what it means to be asexual. And I think this is important because I've heard different people and even different researchers define it in different ways. So for example, I've seen some researchers who talk about it as having never felt sexual attraction to anyone and others who talk about it as a lack of desire for partnered sexual activity. Researchers also vary a lot in terms of how they measure it, with some people focusing on self-identification as asexual and others who focus on lack of attraction or desire. So as someone who has studied asexuality extensively, how do you define it? And then further, how do you measure it in the work that you're doing? For me, I generally define it as a lack of sexual attraction. And that's pretty broad, right? Like there's a lot of wiggle room in that. And I think that that's really important, especially the more and more asexuality research that we did, the more that we realized that there's a lot of variation in how people experience asexuality, whether it be that they've never experienced sexual attraction or they did and that's changed or they experienced desire for solo sexuality, but not partnered. Like there's a lot of variation. So I leave it broad. And in terms of... Um, how to measure it in research. We started, you know, generally self-identification. You know, if someone says they're asexual, they're asexual. And I think that that is really important for lots of reasons and also in research. And it also became clear at some point in our, uh, after several years of asexuality research, that the asexuals that we were able to recruit were coming from the same source, namely the Asexuality Visibility and Education Network, which is an online group. Amazing, great place for people to talk about and their asexuality and find support, all of this great stuff. But, you know, people coming to our research from that space are going to become, you know, like have talked about it a lot, have thought about asexuality a lot, etc. So we actually ended up developing a questionnaire to try and identify asexuality for people who may not have heard the term before. So we use a combination now, self-identification plus a questionnaire. So as I said, different people sort of define this in different ways. And I think the way that we hear researchers talking about and categorizing asexuality is also changing. And this is something I'm thinking a lot about as I work on revisions for the next edition of my human sexuality textbook. And so the way that I'm sort of thinking about asexuality now is plotting it on this continuum where you have asexuality on one end and allosexuality on the other end, with asexuality referring to a complete lack of sexual attraction, allosexuality referring to somebody who regularly or typically experiences sexual attraction, and then in the middle you have what we call gray sexuality, where you have this range of individuals who experience sexual attraction, but only under certain circumstances or conditions. So for example, demisexuality is a term that we often hear that falls into this gray sexuality category, where these individuals only experience sexual attraction when they have this deep emotional bond with another person. And so, you know, I mentioned this because when you hear people talk about asexuality, sometimes they're using it as this really broad term that also encompasses gray sexuality, but then there are others who make the distinction between the two. And so, you know, the language here is still evolving and we're not all on the same page about what these terms mean. So I always like to start with that definitional question whenever we're talking about this. 
So what do we know about how common asexuality is? Of course, with any form of sexuality, the way you define it is going to affect the responses that you get on surveys. And so sometimes that's going to lead to different conclusions. But generally speaking, what do we know about prevalence? How common is asexuality in the population? Generally, the number that is cited is that it's about 1% of the population, and that number comes from a 2004 study by Anthony Bogart. There has been additional studies kind of finding that the rate is from about 0.4% to maybe up to 35 or 4%. But again, it really depends on how we're defining asexuality in that research and how people are interpreting it or whether they've heard the term asexuality before. Like, so... I, around 1%, but we probably don't know. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things that will be interesting to explore going forward. And for example, will we see rates of asexual identification increase? And, you know, there could be different explanations for that. And one might be that it's finally giving people some terminology to describe themselves in a way that they previously didn't have access to that terminology. You know, that's part of the reason why we see a rise in identification of people who say that they are transgender or non-binary. It's in part because the language is evolving and we have new ways to describe ourselves and our experiences that just maybe previously weren't accessible to us. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens going forward and when we have longer term studies of asexual identification. Now, we've long known that asexuality exists, and in fact, Alfred Kinsey was the first person to really quantify a lack of sexual attraction in his research back in the 1940s and 50s with his famous Kinsey scale. And a lot of people think about the Kinsey scale as only quantifying heterosexuality, homosexuality, and bisexuality, where for people who aren't familiar with the scale, it goes from zero to six, and zero is exclusively heterosexual, six is exclusively homosexual, and then you've got varying degrees degrees of bisexuality in between. But Kinsey actually had this X category on his scale to quantify a lack of sexual attraction. Now, despite the fact that Kinsey was identifying and talking about this lack of sexual attraction three quarters of a century ago, we haven't really seen much research trying to understand asexuality until very recently. And as you mentioned, Morag, you know, in the early 2000s, there were really the first studies trying to look at what percentage of the population is asexual. But it was really only in the last decade or so that we've seen like a lot of research and attention to this area to help us better understand what it is. I think this is part of the reason why asexuality continues to be very misunderstood. It's because there's limited research and it has only happened in recent years. And so one of those misunderstandings is this idea that asexuality is asexual dysfunction and specifically an inability to experience sexual arousal. But your research counters this idea. So can you tell us what you found when you studied sexual arousal patterns of asexual people? Yeah. One thing I would say is, you know, like even this idea that Kinsey's research never got picked up or that X category never got picked up is because in our society, we really have this, we're interested in this idea of compulsory sexuality, right? That we should all be sexual in some way or that we all are sexual. And this really informs, I think, a lot of the myths and misunderstandings of asexuality and why it's been ignored for so long, probably. And also kind of how some of these ideas about that, it must be a sexual dysfunction because people must be sexual is the kind of idea, right? So a lot of our research is aimed at trying to understand or de 
debunk some of these uh, misunderstandings. And so we did a study, sexual arousal in asexual women, probably 10 years ago that published, that study was published. And what we did is we showed asexual women, erotic films alongside lesbian women and heterosexual women, measured their genital arousal using a, a vaginal probe, a vaginal photoplethysmograph, and found that asexual women did show similar, statistically similar levels of genital arousal to allosexual women or women of the other sexual orientation groups, which is really amazing, right? I mean, it just fits into existing patterns that we understand of women's sexual arousal, you know, women of all sexual orientations. It gets a little bit complex, <laughs> but, you know, like generally women of all sexual orientations will have genital arousal no matter what the, they're shown on film. And so asexual women have the same response. But interestingly, they didn't have an, a desire to act on that response in the same way that allosexual women did. And that it's not that their arousal response was, quote unquote, broken, but they just didn't want to act on it. And I should say, we also recently did a study on men that hasn't been published yet. And so what we found there is we showed similarly, but you, we measured genital arousal in men compared to asexual men compared to gay men and heterosexual men showing them erotic films and found that asexual men had significantly less genital arousal when watching erotic films compared to allosexual men, which we would expect from previous research. And we found that if we asked all men in this study to fantasize about whatever they found interesting, that all men had a similar genital arousal response, right? So interesting. So again, you know, asexual men's genital arousal corresponds to what we'd expect in men of other sexual orientations. I appreciate you sharing that because I've long had the question of, you know, what do asexual men's sexual arousal patterns look like? I've assigned your paper on the sexual arousal patterns of asexual women many times in human sexuality courses that I've taught. And one of the questions students have always asked is, well, what, what about men? So I'm glad that you have the data and I can't wait for you to publish it so I can finally point people to it. And I think it's really interesting that you have that other condition of fantasizing because people's responses to fantasy and to porn or erotic content might be very different. And, you know, that relates to a topic I recently covered on the podcast, which is how much overlap is there between what interests us in fantasy versus porn versus in-person behavior. And all of these things overlap to some degree, but they all have their distinct elements too. And so I think that's part of the reason why it's worth considering these different contexts when we're studying something like sexual arousal, because we can't assume that arousal is going to be consistent across all of those different domains. But I think the key thing that you're showing here in your research is that across genders, asexuality does not refer to an inability to experience sexual arousal. So we're not talking about a plumbing issue or a sexual dysfunction in this case, which suggests that we need to think about asexuality in a different way. And that really debunks this idea that it's just a, a sexual difficulty. I think another question a lot of people ask about asexuality is whether it represents an aversion to sex, right? So what have you found there or what are your thoughts on that? So to what degree is it that asexual persons are repulsed by sex or are averse to sex or do they feel neutrally about it? What's, what does your data say? 
there's no I mean, again everyone's different this is a you know where it shows like the diversity of asexuality and asexual experience is similar to the diversity and variability of allosexual people's experience of their sexuality right we kind of want asexuality to be one easily described box to put you know people in or something but it doesn't work like that like certainly some asexual people experience some sexual aversion or sexual disgust or kind of think ew when they think about sex okay but i think that's a you know relatively small proportion compared to what people would think right these myths and misunderstandings i think many asexual people are neutral just as in like not interested would rather eat cake or pizza and some of them are you know declare themselves as sex positive, right? They they think sex is healthy and good and they're still just not interested or they know that it feels pleasurable and has felt nice for them sometimes, but also still not interested, right? So again, the range is just so broad. Yeah, so it's a very diverse group of people in terms of their experiences and also the way that they think about sex itself. Now, in another one of your studies, you looked at masturbation and sexual fantasy among asexual persons. And what you found was that most people who identified as asexual reported having masturbated and having had sexual fantasies, although they do it in lower rates than allosexual persons. So solo sexuality is often, but not always present, among asexual individuals. But the nature of fantasy and masturbation is sometimes different when you look at asexual compared to allosexual persons. So can you tell us a little bit about what masturbation and sexual fantasy might look like for someone who is asexual? Well, the first thing I would say is that, yes, you know, a significant proportion of asexual people do masturbate or have masturbated or do it regularly. And, you know, a reasonable proportion of them don't or haven't, which again challenges this myth or idea we have about sexuality that everyone fantasizes, right? And that if we just understand their fantasy, we would understand what they're really interested in, right? There's like, this is kind of actually talked about amongst sex researchers until relatively recently. So it is one aspect of asexuality that it challenges our idea of sexuality in general. And of those people that do masturbate and or fantasize, yeah, the study that we did really asked him people to describe their fantasies, you know, asexual people, and we had an allosexual group as well and compared the content of their fantasies. And I think the most interesting finding is that there was far more overlap in the content of the fantasies than there was difference. I mean, just to speak to the difference for a minute, the you know, asexual people tended to be less likely to fantasize about things like group sex, affairs, these kinds of like overtly sexual and content things, but they did equally fantasize about things like BDSM or kink or these other you know, things that generally like we might assume are quote unquote sexual, but are you know of interest to asexual people in the same way that they are of interest to sexual people. Yeah, and that's something that I've actually seen in my own research on sexual fantasies. I only had a limited number of people who identified as asexual who have participated in my research. But by and large, the most common fantasy themes are pretty similar across asexual and allosexual persons. And I also saw that finding in particular about BDSM and kink. And there really wasn't a difference in the, the prevalence or popularity of those fantasies between these populations. And I think that also speaks to an important myth and misconception about BDSM, which is that it's always inherently sexual, you know, and so people can be into BDSM without it being a 
sexual experience for them. And so I've also seen a limited number of papers that have come out recently sort of looking at the intersection between asexuality and the BDSM community, which I think is fascinating and deserves more attention. But I'm glad that we finally have some people who are talking about this. Now, I want to go back to the question about masturbation, because in some of the research I've seen on asexuality, the qualitative experience or nature of masturbation seems to be a little bit different for people who are asexual, or at least it's different on average. So for example, some of them seem to describe it as this non-directed experience where, you know, they might be masturbating, but they don't have like a specific person or sexual activity in mind when they're doing it. And some of them also describe it in sort of very general language, like it's cleaning the pipes, you know, they don't really consider it to be like an exercise in pleasure so much as just like a bodily function. So just curious if you have any other thoughts on sort of the, the nature of masturbation and how the experience of that might differ sometimes for for some people who are asexual. Yeah, yeah. And we heard that a lot as well. You know, this idea of masturbation is scratching an itch, (laughs) you know, this kind of description. And not that that doesn't exist in sexual people as well, or allosexual people as well, certainly, right? It's just we don't, we don't have the opportunity to think about it this way when we're describing allosexual experiences, but asexual experience, we're like, what is going on there? Let's think about this, right? And one thing that does come up is like you were saying, it's almost like masturbating and like maybe fantasizing, but not thinking of oneself as involved in that fantasy, almost like this identity-less interest in sex. Tony Bogart coined the term autocorosexuality to describe this. And it's really interesting because it almost... It's like, you know, the I am part of the person, like the identity piece isn't interested in sex, but the the physiology, the biology of the person has a sexual function and sexual interests and sees sexual cues and, you know, wants to scratch that itch, quote unquote, to have an orgasm or masturbate. But it doesn't align with what that person wants to do or how they see themselves. Yeah. And I think you make a really great point there about how sometimes an allosexual person their body might be in this very heightened state of arousal. They really don't want sex right now, but they're just going to go masturbate to take care of that urge or whatever is, you know, sort of happening in their body. And so you can also have these sort of solo sexual experiences for asexual people that don't really feel like a sexual experience. And it's more sort of like treating any other bodily urge that that you might have. And I wanted to say one more thing about sexual fantasies among asexuals, you know, because when I do my research on sexual fantasies, I consistently find two to 3% of people across studies say they don't have any sexual fantasies at all. And a lot of people ask me, so who are those two to 3%? And many of them just automatically assume that they're asexual people. And so, you know, I cite your research and I also look at my data and find that, you know, most asexual people are reporting having sexual fantasies. So that's not them, or at least you know, they might be part of that two to 3%, but they're not exclusively that two to 3%. And increasingly, what I've found that I think is really interesting is that there are some people who literally cannot have sexual fantasies in the form of creating mental images or pictures, because they have what is called aphantasia, which is this inability to voluntarily visualize mental imagery. And so I think that two to 3% of people who don't have fantasies, that many of them have what is called aphantasia. And so they just you know, literally can't have these sexual mental pictures or mental pictures about anything. I haven't really seen much in the way of scientific research on that, but I would be fascinated to see more work in that area. 
Now, we have much more to discuss, including why we should view asexuality as a sexual orientation, as well as navigating relationships when one partner is asexual, but the other isn't. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. If you're recording a podcast, you need the most reliable and high-quality recording program out there, which is why I use Zencaster. It's easy to use, and you're going to love the results. Sign up today for a free two-week trial and use my exclusive discount code, SEXANDPSYCH, P-S-Y-C-H, to save 40% off their professional plan. Visit Zencaster.com to learn more. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R dot com. Looking to boost your bedroom game? Promescent is here to help you have better sex. Check out their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men last longer in bed. They also have a female arousal gel, lubricants, Vitaflux supplements, and so much more. Permescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, free shipping on orders over $10, and discreet packaging to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at permescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. And we're back. I'm speaking with clinical psychologist Dr. Mora Gul. There are some people who talk about asexuality as a distinct sexual orientation, and then there are other people I've heard talk about it as a lack of a sexual orientation. And in one of your papers, you talk about how the evidence seems to point to the idea that asexuality is something that meets the conditions for being a unique sexual orientation. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and why you think it's worth thinking of asexuality as a sexual orientation? I think there's, I mean, several things going on there, of course. It's always complex. I mean, you know, even in terms of some of the conditions that it meets, one might think about like sexual orientation being a longstanding experience, although we're learning more and more that sexual orientation can be fluid. So, right, again, like immediately gets complex. But, you know, like asexual people kind of describe experiencing it as a sexual orientation. And I think listening to people and how they talk about their experience is a really important part of understanding and, you know, how they're describing what's going on for them. And so that is part of it. You know, some asexual people have described never having had sexual attraction at all. Other people have described it coming and going and both would fit with a sexual orientation model. And another one is, you know, even just the things that we can say that it's not, right? Like some, some of the research that we discussed before the break around you know, it doesn't seem to be a sexual dysfunction, at least not one of sexual arousal or of sexual desire in some of the comparisons of the research we've done with desire disorders. It is has some biological markers that we've been able to identify that are associated with sexual orientations, such as those for gay and lesbian persons. Handedness is one. You know, this fascinating finding that published paper that we published in 2013, we found that asexual people are significantly more likely to be non-right-handed, as in like left-handed or ambidextrous than sexual people. And this is a big deal because there's a lot of research that shows that non-right-handedness has something to do, I mean, it's something to do with prenatal testosterone or prenatal processes that affects development, which has shown to impact sexual orientation in many other people. And we're seeing that finding in asexuals. I mean, like to the degree that like around 25% of asexual persons display non-right-handedness compared to like 10% of, you know, general population. So these kinds of significant findings and, you know, some findings around like number of older siblings, which again is kind of related to prenatal environment is you know, different among asexual persons compared to heterosexual persons. So there are these kind of like biological markers as well that are suggesting that we should be thinking of this as a sexual orientation. 
Thanks for sharing that. And I find this research to be fascinating. And ultimately, this question of, you know, is asexuality a sexual orientation? It depends on how you define the concept of sexual orientation. And as I've discussed in several recent episodes, we are in the midst of changing the way that we think about what sexual orientation is. And I think, you know, a useful model for kind of putting all of our different aspects of sexuality together is Dr. Sari Van Ander's sexual configurations theory, which, you know, allows us to account for, you know, why some people are asexual and others are allosexual, how people can have different attractions based on sex and gender, people can have preferences Mm -hmm. for different partner numbers that they want. And so we kind of need like these broad overarching theories to kind of put everything together. And, you know, it it depends on whether you think of sexual orientation as an attraction that's specifically based on sex or gender, or whether you take this broader view of it. So, yeah, (laughs) I think we're going to see further evolution in how people talk about this in the future. But I think there is a lot of evidence that does point to this idea that, you know, at least in terms of the way that we traditionally think about sexual orientation, that asexuality shares a lot of characteristics with them. Now, in your paper where you discuss asexuality as a sexual orientation, you also talk about how there appears to be this subgroup of folks who identify as asexual, but who have some uncommon sexual interests. So, for example, there are some asexuals who report that they have sexual fantasies about, say, fictional characters or scenes that don't depict humans. So some asexuals may have sexual attractions, just not to human partners. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and, you know, also how that sort of further (laughs) expands the umbrella of what asexuality means? Yeah, it's such an interesting finding and again, it expands this idea of like variation and the range of interest that people experience. And I think some of the, you know, like some of the findings around asexual people identifying non-human persons or fairies or, you know, these kinds of fantasies may have something to do with like not being involved you know some of it might not be they're not involved themselves or they're not attracted to people but their brain wants to think of something as sexual and so it's kind of like landing on something that feels a bit more accessible like there could be so many ways that this could be playing out but it does raise the question you know some people have kind of thought well maybe asexuality is a paraphilic interest rather than a sexual orientation although one could you know argue that actually paraphilic interests may could also be understood as you know the same way as sexual orientation, depending on how we're defining it. But I think for me, it really is just like, once you take away the, you know, the direction of the attraction, if you want to think about orientation that way, it's not oriented towards someone else, but the body and some part of the mind is still sexual, or has like an erotic self, where does that go? The world is yours <laughs> in terms of what you can imagine or what you can think up, or, you know, maybe associations that were made when we were younger, who knows where these things come from. And it also makes me wonder, like, oh, what is this like for sexual people, right? You know, like we're kind of digging into asexual experiences, but allosexual persons, and I know you've done a lot of work on sexual fantasies and like, well, yeah, and what are they thinking, right? Is there, you know, there's all these, you know, people are interested in furries, right? You know, it comes up in allosexual persons as well. Yeah, there's definitely as you said, a lot of overlap there between the the sexual fantasies of sexual and asexual individuals. But now I'm starting to, as we're talking about this, think a little bit more about how asexuality might 
have different types, you know, that it's not just one thing. And I think the same is true for other types of sexual orientation. So for example, if you think about something like homosexuality, I think there's a gender conforming kind and a gender non-conforming kind, and that those are two different things that might have very distinct biological pathways that lead to them. And so when we talk about something like homosexuality, it's not just one thing, you know, and that there might be different types or forms that it takes. And there's actually some really interesting new genetic research that supports this idea that there are different types of homosexuality that might vary in terms of sexual positioning that people take or in terms of degree of gender conformity or nonconformity. And so ultimately, the more that we study sexual orientation, the more complex and complicated it becomes. And nobody falls into these like neat, tidy little boxes. And there's just so much more diversity and variability than we ever knew when we start to look below the surface. Yeah. And one thing I would say is that, you know, like it hasn't come up yet. And I'm surprised because, you know, like many asexual people differentiate between whether or not they're aromantic, as in like they don't experience romantic attraction or they do experience romantic attraction. And, you know, like a number of other kind of like variations on like these kinds of interests as well. And so, again, that makes us rethink how we're understanding all of our ideas around attractions in general, sexual and emotional, right? And so I would think that people who have, or, you know, people who have romantic attractions, and some of the research is starting to investigate the difference between like aromantic asexuals and romantic asexuals experiences will influence what they're fantasizing about, right? So again, another layer of complexity. (laughs) Yes. And I think, you know, increasingly, that's why you're seeing people label themselves with multiple categories, right? Instead of just one. So instead of somebody just saying they are asexual, they might identify as a pansexual, romantic, asexual, right? So you can combine all of these identities in multiple ways that I think allows people to better describe themselves. Because all too often when we hear somebody say, this is my sexual identity label, people have this tendency to assume that all of these other traits and characteristics go along with it, that may not be true because there is so much diversity and variability, as we said. Now, we've talked a lot about different myths and misconceptions about asexuality. And one other one that I wanted to bring up is that a lot of people seem to equate asexuality with celibacy and sort of think that they're the same thing. So how is being asexual different from being celibate? Celibacy is a behavior, right? Where asexuality is an experience, you know, is one way to think about it. You know, celibacy often, you know, is very often an intentional choice to abstain or not to engage in sexual behavior for lots of different reasons. Asexual persons may be sexual with their partners for many different reasons. Like we were just commenting on, you know, like a person may be asexual, but have romantic attractions and interests, want to be in relationships, are in relationships with an allosexual person. And so, you know, there can be many ways that people navigate that relationship, including choosing to have sex or, you know, choosing to have sex for other reasons. So, you know, like intentionally choosing not to be celibate as an asexual person. Yeah. So again, more complexity. So you can be (laughs) an allosexual person and be celibate where celibacy is a choice where you've decided to refrain from sexual activity for a given period of time. And, you know, for example, if you look at research on celibacy, sometimes it's about having time to explore the self free of 
you know, sort of the complexities of sexual relationships. Sometimes it's about a religious thing. You know, there, there can be all different reasons why someone might choose celibacy. But when you look at asexuality, that's not something that people choose, right? It's an aspect, a characteristic of the self. And somebody who is asexual might not ever have sex. But actually, what I've seen in the research is that most asexuals have sex at some point in their lives, and some of them have a lot more sex than others. But also, one of the other interesting things there is that when you ask asexual people to define what sex is, they tend to define it differently than allosexual persons. And they seem to take this much more expansive view of really any kind of genital contact is something that is counted as sex, whereas allosexual persons are much more likely to focus on penetrative intercourse is, is sort of being what constitutes sex. Although there's variability within allosexual persons based on sexual orientation, where lesbians take the most expansive view of sex and gay and bisexual men and heterosexual women tend to take, you know, somewhat narrower views. But yeah, like, it's just something else that I thought was interesting to add here is that the actual meaning of sex is something else that can also vary for people who are asexual versus allosexual. Now, since you brought up asexuality and relationships, right, we talked about how somebody who is asexual can be aromantic, meaning they aren't interested in romantic relationships, or they can be romantic, meaning they are interested in relationships. And sometimes asexual and allosexual people partner up, and sometimes that poses challenges. And in fact, I received an email today from a listener who asked for advice on navigating these relationships. And specifically, they wanted to know what you can do if you're asexual, but your partner isn't, and your partner doesn't want to look for sex outside of the relationship. So how do you make the relationship work in that case, you know, when one partner has these sexual desires or needs, and they're partnered with somebody who is asexual? Oh, yeah. And you know, it's such a good question. And it depends so much on the individual people, right? Like, I certainly don't want to make any blanket statements about how that would work, should work, could work. You know, it is like any aspect of relationships, again, like complex, you know, like in healthy relationships, good relationships, we're communicating about what we're wanting and needing on all aspects, you know, including hopefully sex, even for like allosexual, allosexual pairings. And so it becomes even more important for an ace and allo relationship to be really, really open and honest with themselves and with each other about what they are okay with, what they enjoy together, what they don't enjoy, and what they agree to engage in together. And I think the most important part of this conversation needs to be that it is absolutely okay to decide to never have sex at all ever, right? You know, like there, because it can get a little tricky with, you know, people, you know, asexual person maybe feeling like they should engage in sex because that's what you do in a relationship, right? Again, we have these cultural ideas and myths and misunderstandings of what we quote unquote should do. And that is a lot of pressure on a person who doesn't experience sexual attraction. Not that they couldn't choose to, you know, like, or they don't, they couldn't want to engage in sexual behavior, whatever that is. But I would really want to explore why. What what is it that you are thinking and feeling? What is it that you really want? What is it that your partner really wants? Can you talk about that and really listen to each other and negotiate what this looks like together? Yeah, and you know, any good relationship 
is all about negotiation and, you know, meeting each other somewhere in the middle so that everyone is getting what they want. And for some people who are asexual, they are willing to have sex with their partner on occasion, even though that's not what they really desire, but it's because they want to make their partner happy and making their partner happy makes them happy. So there's some sort of element of, I guess I don't want to call it conversion there, but because it's not with somebody outside of the relationship, but in this case, you know, making their partner happy makes them happy. And so for some people that might be an acceptable solution is to have sex sometimes. Sometimes it's even to schedule sex so that there is a certain frequency at which it happens. But you need to be very clear on what the activities are and what it is that everybody's comfortable with. And as I just mentioned, you know, different people can have very different definitions of sex and what counts. And so, you know, that's all important to take into the equation here. But I think, you know, sort of you're absolutely right in saying that, you know, this shouldn't be about feeling pressured or coerced to have sex, you know, don't do things that you don't want to do sexually. But if you're in a relationship where somebody is asexual and the other partner is allosexual, in order to make that work, you're probably going to have to find some way of compromising to meet each other in the middle. And in some cases, they might not be able to find an acceptable solution. And so, you know, not every relationship can work out because not everyone is compatible. Yes. Yeah. And I think that being able to accept that as well is really important, right? Like to be able to accept that, okay, this is who I am. This is what I want and need. This is what my, who my partner is. This is what they want and need. And, you know, we work together to try and find the overlap, you know, like that plays the, the middle ground there. And if we can't find it, we need to find a way to be okay with that and like, you know, feel good and care for each other in that, even if the relationship isn't going to work, right? which can be quite difficult, very difficult, right? Yep. Yes, much easier said than done. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, in other situations where you have asexual and allosexual persons who are partnered, sometimes engaging in some form of consensual non-monogamy is the solution, where maybe they are polyamorous or in some type of sexually open relationship. So do you have any tips and advice on sort of navigating sexually open relationships where one partner is asexual? I mean, I think it would probably be along the same lines of like talk, listen, know thyself, right? And like trying to negotiate what is genuinely okay and trying to strip away, you know, trying to strip away our biases is a big part of this and not so easy, but being able to talk about emotions that do come up like jealousy, right? It's very natural for that emotion to come up around very consensually open relationships, even when everyone's fully on board with that. And again, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of talking. It takes a lot of trust. You know, I guess one thing I would say with opening relationships is the more stable the relationship is in other aspects and the more work that you're doing to care for the relationship in general, the better that that opening of the relationship is going to work. So you're going to have all of that, you know, like stable base to come back to when you try to try and figure out the, the difficult stuff of navigating what that's actually like in real life. Yeah, I love everything you just said. And those were all of the key areas that I would have brought up too, right? So I often say that opening up a relationship is not going to fix all of the problems that you have in your relationship. And, Absolutely. you know, it's one thing if you're opening it up and one partner is asexual and the other one's allosexual, and it's just allowing the sexual outlet for one partner. But if there are deeper underlying issues, trust issues, other things like that in the relationship, opening up can actually make all of that much more 
complex and can lead to more trouble. And so I think when it comes to opening up relationships and also when it comes to acting on any type of sexual fantasy, it's really important to approach that from a position of strength with your partner and to build up the communication skills and have the intimacy and the trust before you sort of make that leap. And then I'm really glad you brought up the jealousy point because before this podcast, I was doing a little bit of Googling about the intersection between asexuality and consensual non-monogamy. And I fell into a rabbit hole in this discussion forum that was talking all about this issue. And there were a lot of asexual people on there who were like, yeah, that'd be totally fine with me to open up the relationship. But then there were also a lot who said, you know, I'd be fine with my partner having sex with someone else as long as they didn't form an emotional connection to another person. So for some, emotional monogamy is really important, but sexual monogamy isn't. And that goes back to the other point that you mentioned about really knowing yourself and what it is that you are and are not okay with, and then clearly establishing those boundaries. But I think when you're talking about opening up a relationship and saying, you know, it's okay to have sex with someone, just don't get emotionally attached. Again, easier said than done, because you can't always predict when you're going to develop an emotional attachment to another person. So I think you can communicate a lot, set your boundaries, but you might have to revisit the rules periodically and sometimes expect the unexpected to happen. Absolutely. Yep, that's right. And I think one other thing that's important there is, you know, just as we were talking about, you don't want to feel coerced or pressured into having sex. You also don't want to feel coerced or pressured into opening up a relationship when that's not really what you want to do. And so, you know, it's, again, really knowing yourself, having that clear communication and doing what it is that is right for both you and your partner. So I'm curious, Morag, is there anything else that you think people should know about asexuality that we haven't gotten into. I know that you've published a bunch of different studies in this area, and I think you've really helped us to better understand the science of asexuality, but is there anything else that stands out to you as important to address here? I think the most important thing for me, and this isn't exactly answering your question, but the most important thing that I have learned from all of my research and trying to understand asexuality is that we can't predict how people feel or, you know, like all of these ideas and expectations of how people quote unquote should experience their sexuality is not really true. Probably right? like, again, like the range of what people are experiencing is so much broader than we would ever expect. And we really just need to be listening to people's experience and saying, okay, great. You know, cause I, I hear, you know, asexual persons often, if they come out to a friend or something, you know, they'll get some sort of like, oh, you just haven't met the right person yet. Or this kind of kind of invalidation or not believing. And that invalidation is really, really harmful for invalidating anyone. is really, really harmful, especially around sexuality, but like in asexuality as well, I think we really need to be a lot more flexible with how we think about sexuality and all of the wonderful variations in which it exists and just embrace it wholeheartedly with the caveat, not harming anyone, go for it. Right. Like, and so I think that's the most important thing that I have learned that I would want everyone to know about this. I think that's great. There isn't one right way to be asexual and that it can mean different things for different people. And your experience is your experience and it's valid. Now, for people who might want to learn more about asexuality, 
or want to be a better ally to asexual persons, are there any resources you would recommend for people to consult for where they can go for more information? Yeah, absolutely. The AVEN website, so Asexuality Visibility and Education Network, is at asexuality.org. Amazing resource for all things asexual. There is a really good book that Angela Chen just published on, it's called Ace, you know, kind of rethinking sexual, you know, asexuality. Can't remember the exact title, sorry, Angela, but it's an excellent book and just really explores all the different aspects of asexuality would be amazing for anyone interested in this, for asexual persons, for their partners. Great resource. Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation and for sharing all of this. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? My website is ontariosextherapy.ca. That's where you'll find me. All right. Well, thanks again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, which was made on Zencaster, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.